Hi, everyone. This Quarium episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, let's dive into this thought-provoking topic. I want to revisit a case we talked about almost a year ago in our episode on discharges against medical advice. This was a young man with a history of IV drug use who came in with high fevers and was found to be bacteremic. When I first walked into his room, I tried to explain our concern that he had endocarditis, a life-threatening infection of the heart valves. But he told me that he had to go home. His mother was having some legal trouble, he said, but he had huge pupils and he just kept yawning. I was worried that he was withdrawing from heroin and that his desire to use again was driving his plan to leave. But he turned down my offer of methadone. He showed me that he understood the risks of leaving, that he appreciated that he could die if left untreated, and he had a perfectly logical reasoning process. So he signed himself out AMA, and he left. A lot of questions can linger after a tough capacity evaluation. What about patients who show that they have capacity, but seem to be pressured into a choice? What happens if the patient fails the capacity evaluation? What happens next? Can we let this patient decide what happens with their body, or do we take that right away? I won't pretend we hold all the answers, but we wanted a space to explore them. I'm Margot. I'm Joffer. And I'm Tamar. Today, in part two of our capacity episodes, we're joined by Dr. Cindy Geppert. I'm a consultation liaison psychiatrist in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I have been doing capacity evaluations for over 20 years. I've probably at this point done thousands. I'm also a palliative care physician, do addiction medicine and pain medicine as well. In my other life, I'm a uh, ethics consultant at the National Center for Ethics and Healthcare at the VA. So from all those perspectives, I became very interested in capacity as a psychiatrist, as an ethicist, and have made sort of that my specialty over the years. And just a quick disclaimer, if you hear some extra sounds in the background, it's just some of Dr. Gepper's excitement for decision-making capacity coming through, thumping on the desk for added emphasis. I'm well known for running around rooms when I lecture and grabbing people and, you know, doing all kinds of strange things. In this episode, we'll first speak to Dr. Geppert about the concept of voluntarism, an important but maybe unfamiliar consideration in so many of our patient interactions, including the one Margot just described. We're then going to explore Dr. Geppert's approaches to some other difficult scenarios that come up during and around the capacity evaluation. Before we dive in, Let's do a quick recap of our last episode on capacity. To have decision-making capacity, a patient needs to, one, communicate a choice, two, understand the information we're providing, three, appreciate the impact that medical decision will have on their life, and four, have the ability to reason through the risks and benefits of the different treatment options in front of them. Keep in mind that capacity is both time and decision-specific. Someone with delirium could be confused right now, but be better after a few hours of fluids and antibiotics. And patients with dementia might not be able to weigh the risks and benefits of a surgery, but they can decide what they want for lunch. Remember that we're not judging the content of a patient's decision, but the path they take to get there. In most day-to-day discussions of medical ethics, this is where the bus stops. But we wanted to take you just a little further today. Decisional capacity is actually only one part of informed consent. 
if you think of informed consent, there are three components. One is that you get adequate information that you can understand. The second is that you have capacity. And the third, which we don't pay much attention to, is that you don't have undue internal or external coercion. Put positively, that's that you have voluntarism or voluntariness, as um, some people like to say. So Dr. Roberts, who's um, the chair at Psychiatry in Stanford, defines it as what enables you to choose freely in the absence of coercion and enables you to make decisions that you can enact your values of what you think is right is good in light of the situation, your history. And it means you can be deliberate, purposeful, genuine, and that your decision coheres with prior life decisions. So those are all a lot of great high-sounding words that seem very far away from what we often do um, with the patients that we're taking care of, unfortunately. Wow. Okay. So at first glance, this sounds like a beautiful ideal of what decision-making could be, but we hope to show how this concept isn't so impractical or esoteric. Volunteerism gets at how we make free, authentic decisions that are in line with our values. But as people in the real world, we're prey to many influences that constrain those decisions. For example, I may want to stay in the hospital and finish these IV antibiotics for my health, but if I miss work for another week, I'm not going to be able to pay rent. In this situation, you could say I have diminished volunteerism. Sure, there's understanding, appreciation, reasoning, and choice, but intuitively, there's something missing here. That's what volunteerism gets at. And tomorrow will help us break it down further. As Joffrey just teed up, normally, to make a decision, we think about two things. Someone needs the necessary information and needs to demonstrate capacity for decision-making. But this third part, the concept of capacity for volunteerism, is something we don't usually talk about. So let's dig in to what makes up volunteerism. In our conversation, Dr. Geppert described the work of psychiatrist Dr. Laura Roberts in defining four domains that influence volunteerism. We'll touch on her work here, and we encourage you to head to the references in our show notes for more. The first of the four elements impacting volunteerism are developmental factors. Roberts defines these as cognitive abilities, emotional maturity, and moral character that solidify as we become adults. Most adolescents and young adults just haven't had enough experience or faced enough decisions to fully form their identity. It's not always the case, but often a person's age can be a surrogate for her knowledge about her own opinions and preferences. The decisions I made about my healthcare as a teenager are very different than those I make now. The second element that influences volunteerism is illness-related considerations. Both Dr. Roberts and Dr. Geppert mentioned a number of physical and psychiatric illnesses that can impair volunteerism, even when a patient can still demonstrate decisional capacity. For example, a patient's judgment can be impacted by ambivalence or indecisiveness from depression, or the physical and psychological strains of severe uncontrolled pain or substance use disorder. But illness-related considerations don't always impair volunteerism, Experiencing significant illness can actually also enhance it. Being faced with difficult and important decisions can really sharpen a person's understanding of her own values. For example, a young woman undergoing cancer treatment may need to make premature decisions about fertility preservation or end-of-life preferences. She may need to determine and really understand her priorities more than peers her age. 
The third influence on voluntarism that Roberts described is made of psychological, cultural, and religious values. These factors all impact how we make our choices and how we communicate them. You know, how do religious beliefs shape what we define as good and bad? How does belonging to a community shape what choices are acceptable to us? How do family structures impact who weighs in on our choices? And how do our cultures impact how these choices are communicated? Dr. Gepper discussed an example. I had a young Hindu woman who was involuntarily admitted and placed in a gown and put in the middle of a ward where everybody could see her, which ruined her marriageable ability, which was totally disrespectful. She went hysterical. Of course, she got held all and restrained, and all of it was cultural. Okay, just to have a bunch of strange men wearing a gown looking at her. She was cognitively intact. She had probably never been admitted. That's a person whose volunteerism is so diminished, they can't make a free choice. And finally, voluntarism is strongly influenced by external features and pressures. There are so many factors outside our control that heavily impact our choices. I think of those as all those huge socioeconomic things that are impinging upon all of us. Well, we can't discharge him because there's nowhere to go. Or he can't pay for his diabetes medicine, so he keeps getting admitted for DKA. And so these are all what I call volitional and affective dimensions of how you make decisions. And if you look at decision-making theory, nobody's really rational. Everybody makes decisions emotionally and then reasons later. And no one's really free. To Dr. Geppert's point, some of these external pressures are familiar to us all. Job commitments, financial constraints, responsibilities to family members. But there are also so many others that can much more significantly limit someone's choices— or their ability to make decisions in accordance with their true, authentic values. Like being in a psychiatric institution, in a nursing home, being incarcerated or homeless, being in an abusive relationship. So it's an illusion to think we're not all coerced all the time. We're all coerced, that's the human condition. But when does it become so impinging that you can't act on any of your values? So that's the way that I think of uh, volunteerism. So now that we've defined voluntarism, we've come to our next big question. Is this going to change my practice? At the top of the episode, Dr. Geppert mentioned that an informed consent discussion is based on having information, decisional capacity, and voluntarism. But she acknowledges that voluntarism doesn't tend to be a formal part of our assessments. So courts don't like to look at voluntarism because it's fuzzy and messy and it's hard to quantify. It's even hard to qualify. And so it doesn't make for good court cases that make you feel like you can make a clean decision. It's not really included if you do a standard neuropsychological battery. So most psychiatrists, they would mention it as part of sort of a psychodynamic formulation or a psychiatric assessment, but they're really going to stick to those four components. It's concepts like voluntarism that make medicine as much an art as it is a science. While we don't tend to talk about voluntarism the same way that we talk about the four tenets of decisional capacity, it lends a depth to the informed consent process that might otherwise get missed. For example, like we talked about in our episode on AMA discharges, if a patient's decision-making process doesn't really make sense, there's usually a backstory that can help explain. 
mean, how many times have you like, I can't figure out why this guy, you know, isn't participating in his treatment or why he keeps coming back. And it's your medical student or your social worker or somebody finds out, oh, he has five dogs. And so he has to take care of them. And so he can't live anywhere. So he doesn't have any place to put his medicines and they get stolen or whatever. So it's all those sorts of things, but they can really impact your ability to make decisions and decisions that are authentic to your values. We told Dr. Gebhardt about the patient I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the patient who I suspected was withdrawing from heroin and who wanted to leave AMA. As she explains, an informed consent discussion that only focused on decisional capacity would be incomplete. It would miss the impact that his withdrawal is having on his voluntarism. I think this guy could pull it together enough to answer our stupid psychiatry questions and be let go. Does that mean he's making a free choice? I don't think so. I I think he sees no other option because the immediate distress, I mean, heroin doesn't, withdrawal doesn't kill you, but you wish it would. And so he needs relief before he can try to work through this. If we understand the strains on someone's voluntarism, we can try to take steps to alleviate those strains. The first thing you should do when he says AMA is say, what can I give you? You know, do you need some opiate? Do you need a benzo? What do you need to calm down to feel comfortable and safe with me trying to work up your, your endocarditis? Some of these problems are solvable, like the situation Dr. Gepper just explained. But there are so many situations I've come up against that feel so much bigger than me, like imprisonment, immigration status, and racism. Tamar mentioned that external features and pressures can make it really difficult for our patients to make decisions that are in line with their values. So what do we do when our patient's voluntarism is impaired by forces beyond our control? I try to always get try to get to the values, even if I can't actualize them. You know, I think from an activist standpoint, you can do all you can, you know, as as a professional to change the laws, but the laws are always there. And there are always going to be cases that enrage you or make you indignant because you aren't allowed to treat the patient because you're not the one in power and that's not the structure. But I try to always, at least to be honest, mention it that I think so-and-so, if they had other options, would not choose this. There are certainly voluntarism considerations there that probably really seriously impair capacity. But no one's going to really grasp it that way, right? Because it's such a huge political issue and they don't want to deal with it and they can't deal with it. We want to acknowledge how frustrating it can be when there are these problems that we can't solve. I feel like medicine trains us to have the solutions to our patients' problems, but I can't save my undocumented patient from wage theft. I can't solve my patient's housing problems. And there's only so much I can do to help my patients with addiction. But it's still worth thinking about these things. It deepens our empathy for our patients. This can also be a call to action. Call your representatives, vote, protest, donate to causes you believe in if you can. We may not have the power to solve all of these problems, but we can advocate for our patients. To wrap up this section, a few key takeaways. Informed consent is based on information, decisional capacity, and voluntarism. Voluntarism gets at our ability to make authentic, uncoerced decisions that are in line with our values and identity. Voluntarism isn't something that we're always formally assessing, but it's a helpful lens to use if your patient is making a lot of conflicting choices, or if they're coming to a decision that doesn't seem like it's in line with their values. Okay, 
We want to step away from volunteerism now and take time with the rest of the episode to talk about other difficult elements of the capacity assessment. We'll start by how to approach patients who won't cooperate with the capacity exam, and also what happens to patients when they fail the capacity exam. Specifically, we'll talk about how to support unrepresented patients and the difficulties of treatment over objection. Finally, we'll turn the lens back on ourselves, talking about physician bias and moral distress. So first off, what do you do when a patient won't cooperate with the capacity exam? You're trying to figure out what they understand about a situation, but they won't answer any of your questions. First, we can say that it's fair to be suspicious when this happens, and we can take it as a red flag. When a patient doesn't understand what's going on, Dodging a question or refusing to talk can be a protective strategy that keeps them from getting embarrassed or frustrated. But you need to know where to draw the line. When a situation is medically dangerous enough that a person can hurt themselves by leaving the hospital or making some other choice, you may have to turn the conversation into an ultimatum. I want to give you the best chance, right, to show you have capacity and go on your way and do what you want. But I really need to know... And so you gotta you gotta answer some questions. So that's sort of in ethics terms a soft paternalistic approach, right? You know, you gotta tell me before you can go. So just fine isn't enough. How are you gonna be fine? What are you gonna do? What do you know about yourself and your situation different than I know as a doctor that makes you think you're gonna make it out that door? If that doesn't work, don't try and keep pressing the issue head on. It will only further antagonize the patient and alienate yourself from them. Instead. Dr. Gebert suggests trying to engage in casual conversation, which may subtly tell you what you need to know. If you have a lot of experience and skill and time, you can usually come to a pretty good assessment of capacity just by talking. So often I just sit down on the bed and go, what do you do for a living? You know, what's your cat's name? The residents think I'm crazy because I don't ask any psychiatric questions. You know, if they're watching Gunsmoke, I say, oh, yeah, it's Gunsmoke. Wasn't that a great show? And, you know, just whatever I can do as unpsychiatrically as possible. For example, patients that can make jokes and use wordplay probably have some capacity left. Those are higher order abilities. If they have a lot of verbal fluency, you know, there's somebody still home. And so it doesn't mean they're going to make the best decisions, good decisions, rational decisions. But if you sit there and listen long enough, you'll get a sense of how they problem solve. Can they think through things? Do they remember what they just said? Do they remember what you just said? Once you get the ball rolling in a conversation with the patient, having a little background information about them in your back pocket can be a helpful way to get to some of those harder questions about capacity, like what the patient can remember, appreciate, and reason through. The other thing I'll do is I'll read the chart really carefully, and I'll have in the back of my mind... Hey, you know, you say you're fine, but what happened the last time when you left and you ended up in that ditch? Tell me. Tell me why you ended up in the ditch. Socratically, kindly sort of pushing them, trying to get clues about their reasoning ability. What are you going to do if you leave now? How are you going to avoid the ditch, right? And whether they see that it's really serious to end up there. Ultimately, if a patient is not willing to speak with you and you believe there is a significant medical risk in leaving, we can't assume they have decision-making capacity. We brought this up in our first episode on capacity, but it has to be said again. No discussion means no capacity, at least at that moment. Another particularly difficult situation is a patient who doesn't have capacity, but also has no one to speak on their behalf, the so-called unrepresented patient. This might be a John Doe who comes in after a major trauma under an assumed name, an elderly nursing home resident without any family, or a patient with tenuous immigration status and no other identifiable contacts. How do we make decisions for patients in this situation? 
As a reminder, the gold standard for guidance and medical decision-making for patients who can't speak for themselves comes from any prior documents they may have written when they were lucid. Advanced directives and living wills speak legally and directly in the patient's voice. If these aren't available, we look for someone they've chosen as their healthcare proxy, maybe their next of kin or other close contacts that could supply substituted judgment, what the patient would say if they could speak for themselves. If and only if these are both truly absent do we move on to the lowest ring, which we call best interest judgments. Best interest judgments are the toughest spot to be in, because they depend entirely on what we value. For instance, most people surveyed would not support the use of life-prolonging therapies if they were ever in a persistent vegetative state. But how could you ever make this call without knowing them? Unrepresented patients without capacity are one of the most vulnerable groups in medicine, and it takes a tremendous effort to protect them from our individual values and biases. You really need a committee or leadership or somebody else who's not directly involved in the care of the patient and doesn't have all those coercions, right, back to voluntarism, who can try to help make a decision for this person. And you want to have oversight and checks and balances to try to somehow figure out what should we do here in this situation, given that we really, really can't find anybody. But you have to come up with a policy, a protocol, a process, something for how you're going to make decisions for this patient. You can't, no, yes, no, yes, in something as critical as trach or die. And I think you always err on the side of life if you're not sure. Long story short, don't go it alone. These are exactly the times that you need your local ethics committee to help work through this with you, while also integrating hospital policies and state laws. In the final part of this episode, we wanted to grapple with a few difficulties that can come up around capacity assessments and the decision-making process. Not so much in determining whether a patient demonstrates decisional capacity, but the uneasy feelings that these situations sometimes raise. The first example we'll discuss is the discomfort clinicians can feel when patients make decisions that are quote-unquote bad for their health. Dr. Gepper gave an example of a patient placing importance on his independence above all else. I had a guy who said, you know, I live in the East Mountains, which is, would be to you guys, the Wild West frontier. And, you know, I have a well and a septic tank and I don't, I don't have any running water electricity, but I've lived there my whole life. He had gotten to the point that couldn't chop wood, right? He couldn't do a lot of the things that he did to keep him going, but he really understood it. Those were really his values. He was going to probably die in his cabin, but I let him go because I felt that he he really did have the capacity to make that trade-off and make those decisions. Because of our training and our own experiences, it can be hard to accept that our priorities, which are often about treating disease or maximizing safety, may fundamentally conflict with those of our patients. But that doesn't mean they don't ever have the right to make this type of decision. We wanted to expand on Dr. Geppert's last example and speak a bit more broadly about the bias that we as physicians can bring to the capacity assessment. The most frequent bias, and you've all seen this, is only questioning capacity when the patient doesn't agree with you, right? So they're fine until they refuse what you medically recommend or they want to leave AMA or they question you. And then the reverse happens, though. And we don't talk enough about this, which is You assume a patient's capacity, not because they're agreeing with you so much, but because they remind you of somebody you like, or you decide they're incapable because you don't like them. 
I found that my biases come to the surface during goals of care conversations. Like many people, I find CPR gruesome, and having seen a lot of unsuccessful codes, I often find myself wondering whether patients truly appreciate what being full code actually means. A few months ago, I had an elderly man with heart failure and end-stage renal failure who came in with symptoms of COVID and wanted everything done. When I explained in detail what CPR would be like, the chaos of chest compressions and lines and medications, told him that he would likely never come off the ventilator if he ever needed intubation, he told me, just try. Reflecting on that conversation, I wonder whether he didn't appreciate the ramifications of his decisions, or whether I was the one off the mark, and maybe I just couldn't appreciate the reasons that he made that choice. A thorough goals of care conversation can help us understand each other better, but there's a certain bridge of experience that's tough to cross on both sides. And just like Dr. Geppert mentioned, this is a bias that comes up for me when patients make a choice that I worry is bad for them. Dr. Geppert offers some advice on how to minimize the bias that you bring to the table. What I try to teach is figure out what kinds of patients hit your buttons, good and bad. Your happy button and your rage button, you know, your fear button and your sad button, because those are your biases. It could also help to have colleagues weigh in, particularly if you're concerned that you're not making an impartial decision. This next topic is a tough one. No discussion of capacity is complete without a discussion of treatment over objection. It's often the next step in the conversation after the patient has failed a capacity evaluation. The most memorable case for me was a patient I cared for who was brought to the ER for psychosis, then admitted to medicine because he had a terrible case of cellulitis. Unfortunately, he had been off of his antipsychotics for a long time and was acting erratically, sometimes violently. Every time we tried to place an IV, he called us murderers, but he didn't understand that he could lose his leg without our help. These cases of treatment over objection are never easy, even if you have made a clear decision about what needs to be done. Every time I walked by his door, I heard him screaming and crying. It was horrible to put him through this, even though he needed the treatment we were giving. These are complicated cases and often require an interdisciplinary approach. Medically, you have to decide whether the benefits of the treatment outweigh the risks that you'll face by potentially sedating or restraining the patient. Legally, you might need a court order. Laws differ from state to state and differ depending on whether the patient lacks capacity for a psychiatric or a non-psychiatric reason. Ethically, you need to figure out whether it's worth it. If you're getting to the point where you're thinking about treating a patient over their objection, we recommend bringing in your colleagues in psychiatry and ethics to decide how to move forward. Yikes. Yeah, Margot, I've been in these situations too. We can know intellectually that someone doesn't have capacity, but then carrying out what that means in reality can be really morally distressing. Screaming, crying, fighting with you, it's awful, and it really wears on you. And even just making the decision to take away someone's personal freedom, declaring someone incapable of making a choice, just that alone can really weigh heavily on you. I don't think we think enough about the moral distress that comes from doing capacity evaluations. The first time I had to go to a psych unit and say this guy was incapable, I mean, I, I couldn't sleep. I, I just, I still worry that when I die, all those are going to come back at me. All these people, you know, that I infringed on their freedom and I kept them from going home and, you know, so I think there's a lot of moral distress to it that influences your ability to keep doing it and, do, and, and doing it well. Look, this is hard, 
hard stuff. And it's hard precisely because it pushes us out of our normal medical algorithms into some of the deepest places of moral reflection. What is the right balance of beneficence to autonomy? How do we protect the most vulnerable but still honor wishes? Trying to answer these weighty philosophical questions for each individual can be a huge burden to take on. We don't as a society agree, right? We don't agree what should happen to people who don't have anybody. We don't agree what should happen to people who probably can't safely be discharged. We don't agree what should happen if somebody just wants to leave even though we're going to die. We have a whole spectrum of philosophical, political opinions about that that aren't medical, that aren't scientific. So there's not a lot of backing. If you have breast cancer, you need surgery or you need chemotherapy. It's very different than the rest of what we do. We know we can't solve your moral distress. Sometimes there's no way to reconcile our personal views with what a patient's family member or the hospital or a state law dictates. And I've walked away from many of these situations with a terrible taste in my mouth. But we hope that thinking through your difficult cases with the concepts we've discussed here today offers some clarity, some way to articulate what's at stake and why it feels wrong. For me, leaning into these cases and talking about them with whoever will listen has helped me tremendously. Thank you for tuning in to part two of our episodes on capacity. The point of this episode was not necessarily to provide clear answers, but to hopefully help foster interest and discussion so that you maybe feel better prepared to work through these less black and white cases as they come up and to cope with the emotions they raise. We hope we covered some of the big considerations we face outside the formal decisional capacity assessment and left some food for thought. Our huge thank you again to Dr. Geppert, who had important closing words. And so you have to be comfortable in the gray and know you're going to make mistakes either way. And that's what happens in a place where you try to balance beneficence and autonomy and non-maleficence and respect. Thanks for tuning in. We know these topics can stir up more questions than answers. And we look forward to hearing more about your experiences and reflections on assessing decision-making capacity. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, www.coreimpodcast.com contact. If you enjoyed listening to our show and your volunteerism isn't threatened by external forces, please give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we would really love to hear from you. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, the opinions stated in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, special thanks to all our collaborators in this episode, our wonderful audio editor, Julius Kubige, our illustrator, Michael Shen, endless technical support from Harit Shaw, moral and executive support from Shreya Trivedi, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.